0: So I've been working with VMware for the last year, and I can't tell you the number of times in working with them that I said, man, I wished I would have had this service back when. Uh, for example, a few years ago, uh, I was in a meeting. Uh, my CEO walks into the room and he says, Andy, we have some pent-up uh, demand for business in Europe. Uh, we also have some customers looking to come on in the uh, APAC region. Could you perhaps get additional capacity stood up in EMEA, and a new facility built out in APAC in the next 45 days. So uh, in the back of my head, I'm screaming, no. Uh, But for some reason, my mouth said, I'm sure we can make that happen. Uh, Another example, uh, needed to add additional hosts to a vSphere cluster that we had. Uh, Okay, no big deal, we'll purchase the the hosts, we'll get them installed. Uh, Comes to find out that we we didn't have sufficient power in that cage, and the facility provider says, well, sorry, we're over our cooling capacity there. You're going to need to get a new cage. Uh, and oh, once you get that new cage, you can deal with cross-connects and trying to extend your storage fabric and all of that fun stuff into a new cage. Uh, I suspect many of you probably have similar stories to this. You've, you've been trying to expand. You have a project. Timing is a challenge. Uh, I think that you'll find as we talk about VMware Cloud and AWS uh, that you'll see exactly what I saw. And you'll probably say to yourself, wow, this could have helped uh, on a project I was working with or on a challenge I was facing. Uh, much in the same way that that I have. So quick introduction, my name is Andy Reid. I lead the Partner Solutions Architecture team at AWS, which is dedicated to VMware. Uh, So we work with VMware on actually designing and building the VMware Cloud and AWS solution. Uh, To make sure we're all in the right place, you are in ARC 402. Uh, So in this session, uh, we're going to dive fairly deep into how some of the uh, actual components work in VMware Cloud and AWS. Uh, I'll start off with a little bit of a, a, a warm up and we'll get deeper as we go. So if you're already very familiar with how the service works, you can kind of black out for the first few minutes. Uh, and then uh, I'll, I'll try to raise my hand and let you know when you can start paying attention, but I suspect it will, it will be fairly obvious. Uh, as we get kind of further on and we've, we've explained how this thing actually works, uh, we'll then start digging into architectural patterns. And I'll try to highlight some best practices as we go along uh, based on what we've seen in the usage of the service so far. Uh, At the end of the session, uh, I'll be around. I think we're the last session of the day, so I'll be up here to answer any questions that you might have until they kick us out of the room. Uh, So we won't take questions from the mic or or during the session, if you could just hold those to the end. Uh, Come up afterwards, I'm happy to engage with you and talk one-on-one about any questions that you may have. All right, so to start off with, I wanna talk about uh, the Software-Defined Data Center. So if you hear me say SDDC, or Software-Defined Data Center, This is essentially the virtualization of all the components that you have in a typical environment. So from a VMware's perspective, you have ESXi, which is going to do the compute virtualization. Uh, You have vSAN, which is going to do the storage virtualization. Uh, And NSX, which is going to do the network and security virtualization. Uh, You also have vSphere, which is the management component for all of this. When we're talking about VMware Cloud and AWS, what we're talking about is the delivery of an SDDC as an on-demand cloud service. So actually being able to go into a console, click a button, and deploy a fully configured software-defined data center uh, dynamically. And not only deploy that, but be able to scale it up or down. So VMware is actually going to manage this as a cloud service. So they're gonna take care of patching. Uh, They're going to take care of ensuring that you're always running the latest version of software. Uh, They'll take care of updating vSAN, updating NSX. Uh, It's also pre-configured and installed, so you don't have to actually uh, install these things whenever you provision an environment. It's pre-configured, very prescriptive, ready to go for you. Uh, They also have uh, automated cluster remediation. So in this case, if a host fails in the environment, uh, you don't necessarily have to respond to that. Uh, If VMware detects a failure, but the host is actually up and running, they'll provision a new host into that environment, uh, be able to evacuate the existing host, uh, vMotion all the VMs off, evacuate the storage from a vSAN perspective, Uh, And then once that host has been evacuated, uh, they'll then uh, kill the bad host, uh, and you have a new host that's already up and running. So if you think about it, VMware is managing the uh, virtualization stack. So you no longer have to deal with compatibility guides. Is this version of ESXi compatible with this version of NSX and those types of things? You also have dynamic capacity. So this is something that's really interesting and kind of changes the thought process. Uh, If you've been a VMware administrator, if you've managed VMware environments, Uh, Capacity planning has probably been a lot of your uh, job, or you've spent a, uh, you probably have an impressive spreadsheet uh, that an accountant would be jealous of, uh, where you've had to keep track of your capacity and management. Uh, So capacity management changes a little bit with VMware Cloud and AWS. So part of the, the reason that customers will typically spend a lot of time on capacity management is you have to account for failure. You have to account for growth. And you're having to buy these expensive hosts, these expensive clusters. There's a long lead time to get them in place. Uh, so as a result, many customers will operate their clusters at like 40 to 50% utilization. And they do that so if a host fails, they have buffer capacity, right? They're not, they're not completely out of capacity they add buffer there. Or if they have a, a department or a, a unit that needs to add you know, 30, 40 VMs, you don't want to come back saying, oh, sorry, that's, uh, that's it for this cluster. I now need to go buy a new host. So there's always a lot of buffer capacity there. Think about how that changes a little bit. If you have VMware Cloud on AWS where you can log into this console, you can click a button and deploy a new host automatically joined to that cluster in the low double digit number of minutes. So 10 to 15 minute time frame, you can have a new host joined to that cluster, and that capacity is ready to go, ready to use. So you're no longer dealing with a purchase order in weeks or months, making sure you have power in place for that. Uh, You log into a console, you make an API call, you uh, you get a new host, and it's joined and ready to use in your cluster. So let's talk about each one of the components in the Software-Defined Data Center. So uh, VMware Cloud on AWS runs on bare metal. This is not nested virtualization. This is not any kind of vert on vert solution. Uh, This is running in an EC2 environment directly on bare metal. So uh, this is ESXi. It's nothing uh, nothing special, not some crazy custom build of ESXi. So this is the same ESXi that you're accustomed to using on-premises. And the vSphere stack itself is, is very much the same and is what you would be accustomed to using. Uh, the hosts themselves uh, are equivalent to an i 316 xl so if you're familiar with that family of instances. Uh, so you have 36 cores or 72 vCPUs, uh, 512 gigs of RAM, and 15 tibibits of NVMe all-flash storage. And I have the asterisk there in the storage because there's an important piece that we'll, we'll talk about in just a moment on that. This also uses our enhanced uh, elastic network adapter, so this has a 25-gig uh, bandwidth between each of the hosts. From an ESXi perspective, you can have uh, anywhere from four to 32 hosts in a cluster. And as I mentioned, you can scale that up or down based on need. So this is also something quite different. Uh, Used to be, you know, you buy that hardware, you're living with it, you're stuck with that hardware and you're depreciating it over three years, five years, whatever your depreciation schedule may be. Uh, In this case, you can actually buy that host on demand and pay for it by the hour. Uh, So if you have a big project, you need to scale up, you can add that. Uh, you can scale up to 32 hosts in a cluster. Also something we announced uh, this morning uh, is that uh, you will now be able to support up to 10 clusters uh, in an SDDC. So if you think about the scale that you can achieve with this, you can have up to 32 hosts in a cluster and up to 10 clusters. Uh, the uh, 10 clusters is coming soon. Uh, this is maintained by VMware, so VMware is going to take care of, of uh, running ESXi. Because this is a supported cloud service, uh, there are some restrictions. there's some caveats to be aware of. And I'll try to highlight those uh, as we go through the presentation as well, as uh, those can be very important when trying to architect and design this into your existing environment. Uh, so, the first thing to highlight is you have no SSH or root access, and you have no ability to install VIBs or plugins. And if you think about it, that makes sense, right? This is a supported cloud service, it's an SDDC as a service. Uh, it'd be difficult to actually support and guarantee availability and, and uh, stability of an environment if uh, all kinds of random third party plugins are getting installed uh, into the hypervisor itself. All right, so from a vSAN perspective, what vSAN is doing in this case is it's aggregating the local instance storage of each one of these hosts. So if you, normally what you would hear is, hey, if you're gonna use ephemeral storage, if you're gonna use that instance storage, be careful because it goes away if the host dies. So what vSAN is doing is actually aggregating that storage and providing the redundancy uh, and uh, replication of that data so that if a host does die, uh, you have parity, you have data on remaining hosts in the cluster. So it's taking uh, the number of hosts that you have in a cluster. It's aggregating that local storage, so you get the performance benefit of having this local all-flash NVMe VME storage, uh, and you also have the reliability and protection of VSAN because it's providing the actual uh, replication of data and protection of data. So VSAN has two tiers: there's a capacity tier and a caching tier. So I mentioned you know the big asterisk next to the 15 terabytes or terabytes. So uh, part of that is there's roughly uh, three and a half uh, terabytes of storage that's being consumed for uh, caching. So this is VMware has a caching tier, that, that data is being used for caching, uh, which leaves you roughly about 10 terabytes, uh, 10 terabytes of uh, storage uh, available for use. And that's raw, so you can actually, from a, a VM storage policy, you can define how much replication you wanna have. So if you have a VM that's incredibly important, you could replicate that more so you can survive uh, multiple host failures, uh, or if it's not that important, you could set it to no protection, and if that host goes away uh, where that data happens to live, then, then the VM will go away. Uh, but you kinda get the best of both worlds. You get the performance of that instance storage, but you get the protection uh, that vSAN is gonna provide for you. It's important to note that vSAN is the only data store option uh, in this case, so you're not using EBS or uh, e- EFS as external uh, data stores. So the uh, vSAN is providing a distributed data store, that's really your only storage option uh, for this. What that means is your storage is gonna scale linearly with the number of hosts that you have in the environment. So you want more storage, you add additional hosts, uh, you get that you know, roughly 10 uh, tibbits of, of of storage and depending on, your, uh, depending on the, the storage policy that you use, that will impact what your actual usable storage is. So important takeaways there, Uh, EBS and EFS are are not used. It's distributed data storage, very high performance because of the the local flash storage that you're using uh, and that uh, you can control the resiliency of of that particular data based on VM storage policies. So NSX is providing the network and security uh, virtualization for this. So we're gonna spend a lot of time on network and security today as you're architecting this into your solution. connectivity is a huge part of that. Uh, So uh, I will just kind of caveat that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about networking Um, So NSX lets you do a couple things You can do logical networks Uh, We'll get into the logical networks and the overlay How that actually works and what that means Uh, There's compute and management gateways These are uh, uh, gateway devices that provide uh, connectivity for those logical networks through IPsec termination, NAT, those types of things We're going to dig into that a lot more and ultimately, there's vSphere. Uh, so uh, this is a, a vCenter-based environment. If you're comfortable and, and familiar with using vSphere, uh, then you'll be comfortable using this. It's, it's a, the idea here is it's very familiar. Um, as I mentioned, since this is a managed service, you will not have full administrative rights into vCenter. Uh, there's a delegated account. So they created an account called Cloud Admin. Uh, You'll have that cloud admin account. That gives you the permission you need to actually manage logical networks, to manage your workloads, uh, but it's going to prevent you from making disastrous changes that actually break the cluster underneath. There's also a a new thing that's been put in called hybrid linked mode. Uh, We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that as well. All right, so... uh, With uh, the SEDC, you can deploy it dynamically, so you have this... uh, dynamic instance that's spun up this dynamic cluster that you can then use. Uh, the uh, One of the main benefits here is that you can actually, once you've moved your workloads into this environment, uh, you can expand and extend your applications to take advantage of these native AWS services. Uh, so this uh, this SDDC is running inside of EC2. It's running in an AWS environment, and it has high bandwidth, low latency access into the native AWS services. Uh, so in this case, you, you can move a workload seamlessly over into VMware Cloud and AWS. If you think about it, Because this is vSphere, you don't have to go through any type of transformation. You don't have to go through a replatforming exercise. If you want to move a workload from your on-prem environment into the cloud, uh, it's vSphere on both sides. There's no conversion to AMI or anything like that. A common thing that we'll hear a lot about when you're you're dealing in a hybrid scenario uh, is there's a lot of challenges with trying to maintain uh, maintain environments on both sides. So in a typical customer data center, uh, you have this environment you have your own networks there. So those networks are gonna be different than the subnets that you have in AWS. So if you were to ever try to move a workload uh, from on-prem to AWS, uh, you're gonna have to re-IP that workload, you're gonna have to convert it to a different machine format. Uh, There's gonna be different tools. So all the tooling and everything that you're accustomed to using on-prem, those are gonna be different when you move into a cloud environment. So with VMware Cloud and AWS, uh, it's essentially vSphere on both sides. So if you're comfortable running a vSphere environment uh, on-prem, you're going to be comfortable running it inside of uh, the SDDC inside of AWS. Uh, so networking, tooling, the skill sets that you use, machine formats, networking, all of those types of things are now the same on both sides. Uh, you're not having to go through any type of transformation process. Uh, I mentioned the hybrid linked mode earlier. So, uh, the SDDC is actually deployed in its own single sign-on domain. If you've ever uh, melt, uh, dealt with a, the platform services controller uh, from VMware, uh, you can create a single sign-on domain. That would obviously be difficult if you're trying to auto-provision this environment and have it pre-built up for you. You don't want to have to wait to configure an external single sign-on domain. Uh, so VMware will create this as its own uh, sign-on domain, and they've introduced hybrid linked mode. What this allows you to do is actually connect it back to your on-premises environment uh, and show up just as another data center. So if you're, if you look inside the vCenter, you know you're used to seeing all your different data centers that you have in that environment, VMware Cloud and AWS will show up just as another data center. So now you have a single pane of glass, uh, you can manage this environment using the exact same screen that you're using in your on-prem environment, uh, and you're not having to jump over to a different interface. All right, so this is deployed in a slightly different way than what you'd be accustomed to from an AWS service. As such, there's going to be two accounts that you need to be aware of. And I want to just bring this up early because this is kind of a primitive thing you need to understand uh, as we continue to discuss how the service works in the future. Uh, So the first is, when you sign up for VMware Cloud on AWS, VMware is actually going to create a brand new AWS account for you. Uh, You have no visibility to this account. You'll never log into it. You'll never see it. Uh, VMware is creating a single-tenant account that they'll pay for, uh, that they own, that they operate, they have access to, And this is going to house all of your VMware Cloud and AWS resources. So all those ESXi hosts, NSX Manager, the NSX Control Cluster, all of those components are running in an AWS account that's just for you. So this is not a a multi-tenant, your hosts are mixed in with a bunch of other hosts. They're creating a brand new account uh, on on their end. It's actually using organizations. So if you're familiar with uh, AWS organizations, how you can create a child account, it's very much that setup. So they create a child account just for you uh, to run all of your resources. Uh, and they'll pay for this and deploy all of your resources in that. So the question then comes up: Well, how do I run my services, the things that I care about from an AWS perspective? So you have your customer-owned AWS account. If you want to run RDS, if you want to run Redshift, if you want to run uh, have S3 buckets, you'll run these inside of your AWS account. So there's two bills. If you think about it from a, a billing perspective, you're going to get one bill from VMware for running all of the AWS. I'm sorry, for running all the VMware Cloud and AWS SDDC. Uh, That will be billed by VMware. And then you'll have your AWS account, in which you're running all of your AWS services. The thing that we're gonna do here, though, is we're gonna connect these two accounts together uh, in a a very different manner uh, than what you would typically do. And we'll walk through that in in more depth as we go along. So key takeaway here, two accounts, one owned by VMware, one owned by you, the customer. Uh, You'll have the complete isolation of that, so your account is not shared with others. Uh, You'll run all of your AWS services in your AWS account two bills. So just important to make sure you understand that. All right, so let's talk about some just quick use cases, how this might fit in, as as we're going through the technical details, uh, you can be thinking about how this might apply to your environment. So there's a few things we hear from customers today about how they want to leverage VMware Cloud on AWS and ways they're interested in in using this. Uh, The first one is on data center expansion. You know, I was telling you a little bit about some of my uh, past uh, trials of having to rapidly stand up new facilities and rapidly expand environments. Uh, So in this case, being able to actually deploy into a new region. Uh, Right now, uh, the service is available in US West 2 and US East 1. Uh, So if you are on the West Coast and you want to deploy a service uh, in the East Coast, you can log into the console, click a button, deploy a new environment, uh, a vSphere-based environment in uh, the East Coast. As VMware continues to launch this in additional regions, you'll be able to click a button, launch a VMware Cloud SDDC, uh, fully ready to go in those different environments. This also has some interesting use cases from a disaster recovery perspective. So I don't know about you guys, but at least in in some of my past companies, uh, DR was not exactly a a huge forethought. Uh, And you often took old production equipment, and you take the old production equipment, you recycle it, you'd use it as a disaster recovery uh, environment, or you had a limited budget, and you would spin up uh, a very limited DR environment and then you would uh, hope and, and uh, maybe sacrifice a stuffed animal or something uh, that if you ever had to use this environment that it was sufficient to actually run your production workload. have uh, Nothing against stuffed animals. Um, <laughs> so uh, the DR use case for this, you know, we mentioned the minimum cluster size is four hosts. Uh, you could actually deploy a four host cluster, use it as a pilot light, uh, have your replication targets there, maybe your databases that you're gonna target, uh, all of the data for your environment and you replicate it in there. And if you ever have to actually spin up the environment, you could go from four hosts to eight hosts, 10 hosts, 32 hosts, whatever you actually need. Uh, but again, you can deploy those additional hosts in the environment uh, in a very uh, short timeframe. You uh, we were talking you know, minutes as opposed to days or weeks. Uh, and so within minutes, you can have a fully functional cluster, rehydrate, rehydrate your workloads. If you combine that with something like S3, so maybe you have some of your data stored in S3 or even uh, you know, uh, RDS, Uh, being able to uh, retrieve that data from those AWS services, rehydrate your environment, some pretty interesting use cases there from a a DR perspective. Uh, The next one is on consolidation. Uh, So we hear from a lot of customers that uh, I'm interested in getting out of the data center business. Uh, I would like to uh, either shrink the number of data centers that I have uh, or I would like to completely eliminate all of my data centers. But it's going to take me a long time to move into the cloud, and that's a lot of work that I'm having to do that's not really differentiating my business. Uh, all this time replatforming and, and working on that, is, is just, that's a lot of project and a lot of work that we have to do. Uh, it would be awesome if I could, I don't know, maybe right-click on a VM and move that into the cloud uh, without having to go through a replatforming. So that's very much what you can do with VMware Cloud and AWS. You run that hybrid linked mode. You get the connectivity set up. Uh, I can now move my VMs from an on-prem data center into VMware Cloud and AWS uh, without having to go through replatforming. So this really accelerates the time uh, that you can uh, be moving to the cloud as opposed to continuing to operate these data centers. So uh, shrinking, reducing the number of data centers, or eliminating data centers altogether uh, is a second use case that, that we hear a lot about. The third is, is workload flexibility. So uh, there's a, an example of this would be uh, seasonal workload or cyclical workloads so if you're in Q4 and you're a company that does a lot of e-commerce maybe you need additional capacity in Q4 uh, in that case you could actually expand your cluster, have a six or eight node cluster uh, whatever you need to satisfy that demand uh, and then shrink it down uh, whenever you no longer need it another one is on proof of concepts and projects we hear this a lot from customers uh, I have this project, we have no idea if it's going to fly or not Uh, but I'm receiving a request to deploy a brand new cluster. It's gonna cost me a couple hundred thousand dollars to deploy this thing, Uh, and six months from now, it may not even be needed. So in this case, you have that project team, you spin up a brand new SDDC for them, they deploy their environment, they go to town, do whatever they need to do. uh, Whenever it's no longer needed, just completely tear down the cluster uh, and delete the SDDC. Uh, You haven't made any long-term capital investments. Okay, so hopefully that's a good uh, level set so you have a good sense of what the service is. Let's start diving in a little bit deeper on how you would actually provision an SCDC and some of the requirements that you would have uh, to do that. So there's really, the the first way to get started with this is you're gonna log into vmc.vmware.com. This is the VMware Cloud portal. So as we're going through this, if you hear me talking about the VMware Cloud and AWS portal, uh, this is a separate interface. Um, So you're gonna log into this portal and it's going to use your my.vmware.com credentials. So if you're a VMware customer, you already have these credentials. Uh, This is what you would use to log in. VMware is gonna have an organization construct, so they have an org construct inside of this portal, and they're gonna have identity and access management. It's important to note this is completely separate from your AWS orgs or your AWS IAM. This is only within the VMware Cloud and AWS portal. So you're gonna define uh, SDDC owners, you're gonna actually configure users in this thing, what permissions they have, uh, those types of things. Uh, You'll deploy all that within this portal. When you go to actually create a new SDDC, uh, a few things you're gonna need. You're gonna need to give the SDDC a name, Uh, you're going to need to specify an AWS account in which this SDDC connects to. So this is really important. I mentioned earlier there's two separate accounts. When you actually go to provision an SDDC, you need to define which AWS account you want to connect this to. Uh, Once you uh, provide this information, uh, we'll go through a little bit more detail of how this connection actually works next, Uh, but you're going to specify uh, which VPC you want to connect to and which subnet you want to connect to. And there's implications to this, and we'll, we'll talk about those in just a moment. You're also going to want to specify your management CIDR range. Uh, this is important to think about and to put a lot of thought into, uh, which management CIDR range you want to use. Uh, there's, uh, there's potential as you build VPN connections to establish connectivity into this for overlap. Uh, we'll, we're going to talk more about global IP uh, planning here in just a moment. Uh, but it's a, one of the things you'll have to provide whenever you actually go to deploy this SDDC. And next you'll choose your AWS region. So as I mentioned, it's available in two regions today, both Oregon and Virginia. You'll need to select which one of those you want to deploy this SDDC into. Okay, so we're gonna pull back the curtains and dive in a little deeper on what actually happens when you go to connect this to your AWS account. So the first thing is, you as a user, you're gonna go to vmc.vmware.com and you're gonna download a CloudFormation template. You're gonna jump into your AWS account with credentials that have sufficient permission uh, to execute this CloudFormation template. Uh, and you're going to execute When you run this template, it's going to do a couple things. Uh, it's going to create an IAM cross-account role, and this cross-account role is going to reference a managed policy. So this is not a custom policy that's created by VMware. This is a managed policy that's owned by AWS. Uh, so VMware cannot go in and change what permissions that this managed policy has. This is one of those things that comes up is: hey, if I create this cross-account role, what's going to prevent VMware from actually being able to go in and uh, change the permission, and all of a sudden they have way more permission than what I wanted them to have. Uh, so on this, you're executing the original template, uh, so you're actually creating this role and referencing the managed policy, uh, and then you can inspect that managed policy to see what permissions VMware has. So once they create this cross-account role uh, in this managed policy using this cloud formation template, uh, VMware can then assume that role from their management service, uh, and that's how they'll actually interface with your AWS account. There's a few different things they need to be able to do. They need to be able to work with elastic network interfaces. This is a part of the connectivity between those two services. Uh, They're going to need to be able to modify uh, route tables. Uh, And we'll dig into what that looks like as we go along. But important to note here, in order to establish the connectivity between these two accounts, you're executing a CloudFormation template. uh, That's going to create a cross-account role. VMware will then assume that role in order to make changes inside of your AWS account. This is a one-to-one mapping. So you have, your SDDC can only be mapped to a single uh, AWS account at this point. So if you use multiple AWS accounts, if you uh, are using accounts as a kind of a uh, organizational structure, if you have different teams that have different accounts, we'll talk about how you can establish this connectivity uh, to multiple accounts, but uh, ultimately you have a single account from for the default connectivity that goes between these. All right, so we've deployed our SDDC. Uh, you know, hey, I, I, I can, I get this a lot, but hey, you mentioned I can use my same tools, uh, but you just mentioned this new VMware Cloud console. Uh, what's the difference? Why would I use the VMC console versus my vCenter interface? So, really just want to highlight the differences between those here. So, you're going to log into vmc.vmworker.com to add or remove ESXi hosts. Uh, this is an interface you can go into to actually click a button, add that host, as I was talking about earlier. Uh, this is where you'll do all of your user management for the organization, the, the permissions you have at, a, at an SDDC level, not within vCenter itself, but as you have multiple SDDCs being able to define users and orgs there. Uh, you'll be able to do actual simple network configuration, so your firewall configuration, your external IP address, uh, so being able to actually, for example, take an EIP that's coming from the AWS side and NAT that over to a VM running inside of this SDDC, you would do that type of configuration. Uh, Firewalling and VPN connectivity are all done through this this console interface. So uh, if we actually have time at the end, I'll walk through the interface just briefly just to give you a sense of what it looks like. Uh, Besides that, everything else is done through vCenter. So you jump into vCenter, you can manage all your workloads, you can create and modify your logical networks, uh, you can do all your virtual machine administration and storage policies. All right, so we're going to uh, introduce the concept of an underlay and overlay. So this is, uh, this is really understanding how VMware Cloud on AWS networking works. This is, we'll build on this as we go along so you have a sense of how this connectivity actually functions. So in this case, I have two machines, and this is uh, irrelevant of AWS or irrelevant of VMware. This is just basic underlay and overlay. I have uh, two physical hosts. Uh, And on this physical host, I'm running uh, VMs. And I have these logical networks. So in this case, the green bubble is logical network one. uh, The purple bubble is logical network two. Uh, And in this case, on the the host on your left, we have a VM that has uh, the IP address 192.168.1.0 slash... I'm sorry, 1.50. And on the the host on your right, we have another VM in that logical network that's 192.168.1.51. Now, these logical networks are are virtualized. These are... are, uh, layer two constructs that are essentially, can extend across layer three boundaries. And this is done by tunneling using VXLAN. So the physical hosts themselves are sitting on 172.31.1.0, so the host on the left has .10, the host on the right has .11. So in this case, if VM number one wants to talk to VM number three, uh, he's gonna send a a packet, a a payload, from 102.168.1.50 to 102.168.1.51, but under the covers, what's happening is that entire frame, that entire layer 2 frame, is being encapsulated in VXLAN. So if you look at the bottom there, you can see my underlay network has a MAC addre- uh, the MAC headers, the IP headers, uh, UDP. I have my VXLAN header. And then after the VXLAN header, I have my, my full uh, overlay packet. So I have my MAC address for my overlay, my, I- uh, my MAC header for my overlay, uh, IP header in the overlay. Ultimately, I'm taking the entire overlay network uh, frame and I'm encapsulating that, sending it between the two hosts. So when host.10 sends that to .11, .11 uh, is going to strip off that underlay uh, set of headers and then pass the overlay up into the logical network. So that's how you can actually extend across layer 3 boundary. In this case, I'm showing both hosts are on the, uh, the same layer 3 network, uh, but if they were on two separate networks, I could actually extend my logical network, that layer 2 construct, I could extend that over layer 3 boundaries under the covers. This is one of the things that NSX does, so it has a lot of security functionality, but as well it gives you the ability to create logical networks, uh, and these logical networks can then extend across layer three boundaries under the covers. So the reason this is important is because ultimately uh, VMware is using NSX on top of an AWS subnet. So I mentioned that VMware Cloud and AWS is running inside of a, a separate account that they own and operate, so in this case we have our VMware Cloud on AWS SDDC account, uh, inside of that account, they have a VPC that's been created. Uh, and then inside of that VPC, they have multiple subnets. There's, there's more than three, but I'm just going to illustrate three just for the uh, purposes of this discussion. So they have their management subnet, they have a, a VXLAN subnet, and they have a storage subnet. So these are AWS subnets, uh, and then they have those bare-metal instances I was talking about earlier. So they deploy these physical hosts uh, in this environment, and they're going to connect each one of those hosts into these subnets. So in this case, if I have a VM sitting on one of those hosts wanting to talk to a VM on another host, uh, VMware is actually going to encapsulate that traffic in VXLAN, send it across the AWS subnet uh, to the other host. So this gives you a lot of interesting capabilities. So the actual underlying AWS subnet doesn't see anything that's happening. So if you wanted to send multicast traffic, for example, or you wanted to spoof IP traffic on that logical network, the underlying AWS uh, subnet doesn't see any of it. All the AWS subnet sees is host number one is talking to host number two or host number three. It just sees the, the UDP traffic going between those. But the encapsulated traffic is, is not really paid attention to by the, uh, by the underlying AWS subnets. So if there's something, you know, multicast is a great example. If there's something that you couldn't do on an AWS subnet. Uh, you now have the ability to do that inside of a VMware cloud and AWS network because uh, VMware is ultimately encapsulating that traffic between hosts. Okay, so I have our hosts. Uh, We've put NSX on top of that. NSX is stretching that logical network. Um, And let's talk about the actual logical networks themselves. So by default, you're gonna have a couple of logical networks that exist inside of VMware Cloud and AWS. Uh, The first one is a management network. So this management network's created, it's there when you first create the SDDC, and this is where VMware is going to deploy their uh, uh, vCenter server appliance, NSX manager, the control cluster. Uh, All of these things are deployed into this management logical network. There's also going to be a default customer uh, network. So you'll see uh, a customer logical network. This is there by default. You can deploy your workloads into it, uh, but you can also create additional logical networks. This isn't restrictive. So if you want to make dozens of logical networks, uh, you can do that. Think of it as if, like on-prem, you may have dozens of VLANs set up in your VMware environment. and the same way that you'd create all those VLANs for segmentation, you can do the same thing here uh, in, the, in the environment, just with these logical networks within NSX. So the question becomes, okay, great, I have these logical networks that exist in this overlay. How the heck do they get to the Internet? How do they communicate out uh, beyond these these logical constructs? The answer to that is uh, the NSX edge, uh, the edge services gateway uh, that's a part of the NSX platform. Uh, So in this case, we have two edges, one for the management logical network and one for the customer workload logical network. So these devices will, will do a lot of things. One is they will actually be able to provide connectivity out to the IGW that exists in that VMware account. Uh, they're going to do NAT. They're going to terminate VPN connectivity. Uh, they're going to do firewalling. You can think of them like an IGW that has a lot of additional functionality rolled into it. But these, these uh, gateways are basically VMs running inside of the VMware environment. So the compute gateway is especially important. Ultimately, all of your VMware workloads are going to traverse this compute gateway to get out to the internet. So I mentioned the north-south firewalling, the NAT, uh, IPSec VPN termination, but they also provide connectivity to your AWS account. So I mentioned you're going to have this private, high-speed, low-latency connectivity over to that AWS account. Uh, The CGW is actually what's going to be the the device that routes that traffic. So a good way to think of this logically is your CGW, you can think of it as having kind of three uh, three legs. Uh, One is the compute, uh, all the logical networks that exist inside. These are your internal networks inside of VMware. Uh, Two is the leg that's going out to your connected AWS account. And three is the connection out to the Internet. And while I'm only showing one logical network here, uh, ultimately you can, again, have dozens of those logical networks. So let's dive in a little bit deeper on what that connection between the CGW and the uh, connected AWS account looks like. Uh, One thing I do want to point out here is I'm showing the CGW uh, especially, uh, but the MGW is not connected to your AWS account. So that management gateway, it has connections to the management network and to the internet, but the management gateway does not have that connectivity over into your AWS account. So to access that management network, you're gonna want to build an IPsec VPN tunnel. Uh, or if you are want to live dangerously, you can create a NAT rule to get to your vCenter uh, server. I would not recommend that, uh, but those are, those are some ways that you can connect into that. Okay, so diving in on the customer AWS account connectivity. So we have a four-host cluster. That CGW is, uh, exists on host one, and in this case I have a uh, customer workload uh, running on a logical network. Each one of those hosts has an ENI connected over into your customer AWS account. You can think of this very much uh, in the same way as RDS. If you guys are familiar with RDS, when you deploy an RDS instance, you don't actually see the, the instance itself show up in your AWS account, right? All you see show up in your AWS account is an ENI to provide network connectivity to an RDS instance that's running somewhere else. So this is very much the same thing. Uh, so an ENI is deployed into your account using that cross-account role that we talked about earlier uh, and is connected back to the host running inside of your SDDC account. Uh, So in this case, uh, the CGW is running on host one. Uh, I want to send all of my traffic, obviously, to that CGW, so I have a a route table in my AWS account that's pointed to the ENI associated with host one. So if I have a uh, AWS instance that needs to be able to talk to that compute workload uh, VM over there on the left, uh, it's gonna go through the CGW. The CGW is gonna send it out of the interface on host one that's gonna pop out of the ENI in your AWS account. Okay, that makes sense. So that, that provides connectivity back and forth between uh, those environments. Uh, that gives me a lot of cool capabilities. For example, if uh, that customer workload is a database and I want to be able to expand that database to run uh, to do data warehousing with Amazon's Redshift, well, now I can actually communicate through private IP space, not doing NATing or VPN or anything like that. That VM on the left can actually communicate directly with Redshift. Well, what if host one fails? Uh, that connected E and I is connected to a host that no longer exists or has failed, uh, what happens then? So in that case, uh, VMware will either vMotion that host if it's in a degraded state or uh, will uh, kick over to a cgw that is a backup cgw that's running uh, on an additional host. Uh, It's connected to that logical network still, uh, and they will use that cross-account role to actually update that route table to point it to the new ENI. It's actually faster to update the route table than it is to take an ENI and detach it from one host and attach it to the other. So it's a very quick uh, transition if you need to move between hosts. So for whatever reason, if VMware is doing maintenance uh, or they're upgrading that ESXi host, uh, or a host fails, or whatever, they have the ability to vMotion that CGW around. They can use that cross-account role we talked about earlier to update that route table uh, and to point it uh, to the right ENI. So something really important to note here is you're essentially peering between two accounts uh, but you're not paying peering costs there's no peering fees or anything like that it 's not using peering it 's using this e and i connectivity between the two hosts so uh, however, this in this particular case host two is connected to an e and i on your subnet they're both in the same availability zone so by default we 'll put these things in the same availability zone. One thing to think about uh, as you're as you're designing this environment or deploying this environment uh, uh, in your architecture is if the Thing you're connecting to in your AWS account in this case Redshift so if VPC subnet 2 we're in a separate availability zone you're going to have the cross az charges in that case so by default if the ENIs and the access the resources that you're accessing are in the same uh, the same AZ no problem no no uh, cross az charges there uh, by default that will be the case So the ENIs and the uh, VMware cloud and AWS SVC will all be in the same availability zone once that connection comes over and is in your account you can access resources in all AZs, so just be aware of that uh, as you're planning out your resources and where you deploy them. Uh, If VPC subnet 2 is in a different AZ, uh, you could incur cross-AZ charges uh, in that particular case. Okay, so let's look at an actual hybrid connection scenario. Uh, So in this case, I have a customer data center on the left, I have my compute cluster, I have my management cluster. Uh, And on the right, I have my uh, VMware Cloud and AWS SDDC. I've got my compute gateway that we talked about. I've got my management gateway that we talked about. How would I actually establish connectivity between these things? So the the easy way to do this is we'll just create a IPSec VPN. So from a firewall on-prem that has access to my uh, compute environment, uh, I'll build a VPN tunnel to my CGW. Super easy to do, uh, very quick uh, way to establish connectivity there. The same thing will need to happen for your management infrastructure. So if you want your management infrastructure on-prem, your vCenter server on-prem, to be able to access the vCenter server in VMware Cloud and AWS, you'll need to build a VPN tunnel to that as well. So by default, the vast majority of times, you will likely have two VPN tunnels running, one to the compute network, one to the uh, the management network. However, uh, if you want to be able to do vMotion, you need access to those underlay IP addresses, the VM kernel ports themselves on those ESXi hosts. So, in that case, you can actually use Direct Connect from your on prem environment. Uh, and with Direct Connect, you can uh, connect into those VM kernel ports. And something that was actually announced this morning is uh, the uh, L2VPN functionality has gone into preview, uh, as well as live vMotion. So, if you have Direct Connect uh, and you build this uh, uh, L2VPN tunnel, uh, I'm sorry, if you have Direct Connect or you build an L2VPN tunnel uh, to get access to uh, the environment, you can actually uh, do live vMotion from your on-prem environment into VMware Cloud and AWS. Uh, if you don't need live vMotion, if you just want to do cold, uh, cold migration, you can build the IPSec VPN tunnels. Uh, you'll power the VM off, right-click, migrate, move it into the new, uh, the new data center. Uh, once you do that, you'll bring it up. You'll need to actually re-IP it because uh, it'll be in a different, uh, different subnet in that logical network. With L2 VPN, you can actually stretch the Layer 2 networking across the two environments. In that case, you don't, you don't actually have to uh, re-IP the workload. So if you do the Layer 2 VPN uh, and you have the uh, direct connect for the uh, live vMotion, you can move a workload literally without turning it off. All right, so I just talked about a whole lot of different things. I want to just highlight some best practices that we just talked about and some things to keep in mind uh, as you're planning out an environment. Uh, IP planning is super important. Uh, You have underlay networks, you have overlay networks, you have management networks, you potentially have environments in different regions. Uh, Ultimately, VMware Cloud and AWS will likely be connected to a lot of different things. Think about your IP address planning very carefully. Uh, One thing I I failed to mention is that connection over to your AWS account, uh, it's not just routing the subnets for each of those things, it's routing the entire VPC CIDR range. So if you have a, your VPC CIDR range is a slash 16, that CGW is gonna route the entire slash 16 over into your account. So it's important to just think about how you're going to build these SDDCs, what IP address space you wanna use, uh, what IP space you have on-prem. Likely you're gonna to wanna to build VPN tunnels between these environments. You may wanna do layer two VPN. But spend a, spend a little bit of time thinking about uh, how you're gonna set this up. The same thing goes for management networks. Uh, these manage, it's so easy to scale these environments to add additional hosts to clusters don't artificially constrain yourself by picking a really small subnet uh, on your management side. Uh, Give yourself plenty of space so that as you're adding hosts, uh, you can do so uh, very easily, uh, and you're not having to worry too much about, oh, I chose a really small subnet and I've expanded and and now I'm out of IP space uh, on my management side. Uh, The uh, multi-account, or setting up for multiple regions, don't forget that you may wanna build VPN tunnels, you may wanna connect this to environments in other regions. Uh, So again, look at that globally uh, and think about how you would actually want to connect those things. And again, you can build multiple SDDCs. So I can have one SDDC with one cluster. I can have one SDDC with multiple clusters. I could have multiple SDDCs with single clusters each. So think about how you want to deploy these. Do you want to do it based on teams? Uh, based on departments? Is it a multi-tenant type setup? You have a lot of different options here. It's very similar on the AWS side. It's like, do you want to have a single account with multiple VPCs, or do you want to do multiple accounts, each with one VPC? Very similar thought process you'll want to go through as you're uh, as you're designing this app. Uh, next is from the uh, SDDC to AWS connectivity. Uh, I mentioned before, it's one-to-one. So you have one uh, account, uh, one SCDC connected to one AWS account and it's linked specifically to a particular VPC uh, and subnet within that, so keep in mind uh, for that, and then the subnet AZ placement is important, uh, if you have a lot of uh, if, just keep in mind whenever you connect this thing up if you're connecting to a lot of resources and other AZs keep in mind the cross AZ charges if, those, uh, if the ENIs for VMware Cloud and AWS are in a separate AZ than the resources you want to talk to Uh, also, plan for workload mobility. So this is something really different that you, you may not necessarily have had to think about today. Uh, if you can right-click on a VM and move it to a new environment, how does that impact your backup strategy? How does that impact uh, DNS? Uh, there's a lot of considerations here uh, when it's easy uh, to move workloads back and forth. Uh, it's, it's easy to actually move the VM, but you need to put some thought into, okay, once I move it from on-prem into VM or cloud on AWS, how's that thing gonna be backed up? What's it gonna point to for DNS? Uh, Those are things that you want to make sure you have a good grasp on. Uh, Also, dependencies. If you have an application that uh, is dependent uh, on a database, or maybe there's latency sensitivity there, uh, if you migrate that into VMware Cloud and AWS uh, and the the latency to your on prem data center is too high, uh, that may be something you need to keep in mind as well. All right, so if we were to kind of take those three pillars and just look at the connectivity options between them, uh, you have your customer data center uh, to your VMware Cloud and AWS. I mentioned the Layer 2 VPN to be able to stretch that networking, the IPSec VPN uh, times two, so the the Compute VPN tunnel and the Management VPN tunnel, uh, as well as Direct Connect for the vMotion capabilities and access to those uh, those VM kernel ports. It's important to note on the Direct Connect that you cannot access the actual logical networks themselves. So you cannot traverse that, that Direct Connect and access the logical networks. That's transitive routing, right? It's gonna hit that AWS account and try to want to transit to an account that doesn't, or to a subnet that doesn't exist. Uh, So so that will not actually work. But you can access those VM kernel ports. Uh, The customer data center, getting access into the customer-owned AWS account. This is basic connectivity into AWS that you have today. Uh, So you can do IPSec VPN, you can do Direct Connect. Uh, And then the customer-owned AWS account into the SCDC. that's going to use the ENIs that we talked about. All right, so I talked about multi-account or multi-region. What does that ultimately look like? So in this case, we have a VMware Cloud and AWS SDDC. We have our, our connected AWS account. Uh, those two things are set up there. Uh, but what if I have a, an account that's in a different region or a BPC that's in a different region? So in this case, I have uh, an account, a completely separate account and BPC that's set up in the uh, Canada central region. Uh, how can I actually connect the logical network and the SDDC into that environment? So in this case, I can actually use uh, the uh, VPN capability of both solutions, so uh, uh, I can connect my SDDC into that customer-owned AWS account uh, via VPN. So I can do this to multiple accounts. So if I had five or six different regions, uh, or five or six different accounts, I could connect all of those over. Uh, and in this case, the actual CGW is the AWS's CGW, uh, in and in a great sense of irony there. So, you have your applications moved into VMware Cloud and AWS, that's great, I didn't have to transform, I didn't have to do any replatforming. but the real power of this becomes in expanding your applications to take advantage of those native AWS services. Uh, so a few examples of, of interesting things you can do here. So I have a, a website that's running inside of VMware Cloud and AWS. Uh, how can I I'll ultimately use some of the AWS Edge services to do that, for example, ALB? So in this case, I deploy an ALB, We announced a a couple weeks ago, or sorry, a few months ago, that ALB now supports IP-based targeting. So I have this logical network over here in my VMware environment. Uh, I can connect to it from my AWS account. Uh, So in this case, I can actually create an IP target group using the IP addresses inside of VMware Cloud and AWS. And I can have VMs running in that environment behind my ALB. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, In addition to that, I can actually enable WAF on my ALB. So now I could move VMs running a website into VMware Cloud on AWS and then protect them uh, with WAF and put them behind an ALB. Uh, they also take advantage of things like Shield, uh, use CloudFront, you know, all those types of things. But ultimately, I can extend uh, my applications to take advantage of native AWS services using this account connectivity. Storage is another uh, example that comes up quite frequently. So uh, if I want to be able to connect from a a storage perspective, there's a few different things I can do. Uh, S3 is a common one that comes up. So obviously I can access the S3 public endpoint. So I'm just a VM. I'm going out through the IGW. I'm accessing the the S3 public endpoint. Uh, What if I have buckets that have a policy that restrict them uh, and I want to be able to do those through a private endpoint? Uh, So in this case, I could actually use that cross-account ENI uh, back over into my customer-owned AWS account, and I could use an S3 VPC endpoint to connect into a bucket at that point. So in that case, I have the the VPC connectivity uh, into S3. The same thing actually holds true with EFS. I could deploy EFS into my customer AWS account. I have my EFS endpoints that are attached to subnets. Uh, While this shows VPC endpoint, that's ultimately the same thing as as an EFS mount point. Uh, So I can then mount EFS from VMs running inside of VMware Cloud on AWS. So while you can't use EFS as a data storage option, you can absolutely use EFS uh, from your VMs. So if you wanna be able to to mount EFS from a VM workload uh, and do so, you can absolutely do that. Uh, And then S3, obviously, from a public or private perspective, you can do both. DNS is another interesting use case. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, What if I have uh, an Amazon Route 53 private hosted zone that I wanna be able to connect to? Uh, so I need my VMs to be able to resolve uh, names that are in a private hosted zone in Route 53. So I can actually deploy SimpleAD uh, inside of my uh, customer-owned AWS account. Now, SimpleAD uh, will actually use the VPC DNS. Uh, it'll, it'll default back to the VPC DNS. and uh, The VPC DNS is able to hit Route 53. So in this case, while from outside the VPC I can't hit a private hosted zone directly, I can use SimpleAD as a, essentially a brokering mechanism to be able to make that happen. Uh, this same exact topology works from on-prem. So if you have your on-prem environment connected to a VPN back into your AWS account, uh, you can deploy SimpleAD, you can uh, put a conditional forwarder in place uh, to conditionally forward that, that private hosted zone uh, into SimpleAD, uh, and then it will resolve through the VPC DNS back into that as well. So this gives you a, a way to actually leverage uh, private hosted zones, both on-prem and from your VMware cloud on AWS environment. All right, so some additional things to think about best practices uh, is security visibility and operational auditing you have two firewall control points NSX has the ability to do firewalling on the on the uh, edges so you can firewall there uh, but you also have that that eni that's coming through on your AWS account you can put security groups and update security groups on that eni as well so we have two ways to control it one from the uh, VMware side one from the AWS side so you can choose which side is best to put that on there for you if you want to do egress uh, I'm sorry, ingress on both sides or egress on both sides, you have options to to do either one. I would recommend enabling VPC flow logs. Uh, You do not have, uh, VPC flow logs are not going to show you what's happening inside of the logical network, but for any traffic that's traversing those ENIs and coming into your AWS account, uh, flow logs will show up for that traffic. So as the traffic is egressing or ingressing that ENI going back over into the AWS account, uh, you can see flow logs for that. That's a great way to actually see what traffic is coming across and and be able to, to monitor that as well. Uh, I'd also recommend enabling CloudTrail. Uh, You have this cross-account role that's being used. It's updating route tables uh, on the uh, AWS side. Uh, It may be creating ENIs. Uh, Set up CloudTrail so you can keep an eye on that, potentially create alerts around that so you can pay attention to to what's going on. Uh, But that gives you a good sense of visibility. That's irrelevant of of VMware having access if you have any type of third party that's integrating with a cross-account role or even different departments that are using cross-account roles. I would highly recommend enabling CloudTrail uh, in that type of situation. Uh, An important thing here to remember is treat this as a service. This is not co-location. This is not a bunch of boxes sitting off in a corner running VMware. Uh, This is actually vSphere running as a cloud service. You can dynamically scale it up and down. You can interface it with other services. Uh, You have the ability to actually uh, match your workloads uh, with your demand. So again, if you you have 10 hosts on-prem, you don't necessarily need 10 hosts in the environment here. And they don't have to stay at whatever number you put. actually take the time to to be able to to match the environment appropriately. Decide what your consolidation ratio should be. Uh, In this environment, maybe you're comfortable running 70% consolidation ratio, uh, whereas on-prem, it takes a little longer to get replacement hardware. Maybe you are running 40 or 50% there. Uh, But don't just treat this as co-location and and treat it just like you would your on-prem. This is a cloud service. This is a scalable cloud service, uh, and you can take advantage of a lot of those capabilities there. Uh, Likewise, some of the capabilities you can take advantage of are automation. Uh, vSphere has an API that you can use for actually managing your workload. The VMware Cloud and AWS Console, uh, that environment has an API as well. So you can actually create logical networks. Uh, You can create uh, firewall rules. They have a simplified API that's in place now for NSX. Uh, So you're able to take advantage of those things. So uh, scale your environment up or down, uh, take advantage of the automation, but don't just treat this as as a a co-location. It is absolutely not. Some things that you can do that you typically could not do in an environment, some uh, additional benefits or considerations to take advantage of here. Uh, logical networks support multicast. Maybe you have Oracle Rack, or maybe you have a solution that leverages multicast. Uh, you can actually run those applications inside of VMware Cloud and AWS, whereas you could not do those things necessarily in, in Native EC2, or there's, there's different ways to do them in, in Native EC2. Um, these ESXi hosts are dedicated. So there's some interesting things there from a a licensing perspective. If you have uh, software that cares about licensing, maybe uh, from a Windows Data Center Edition licensing perspective, these are dedicated hosts, uh, so you could actually apply those licenses to these hosts and be able to take advantage there. Uh, So think about how this could impact your licensing scenario. Um, Also, any supported operating system that the vSphere supports can run in this environment. So if you have uh, a virtual appliance uh, that's been deployed by or that's been given to you by a third party or that you purchased from a third party. Uh, or you have a crazy operating system requirement, maybe you need to run Windows 7, uh, or maybe you need to run some uh, you know, other operating system that's, that can't be run directly in EC2, you can run those inside of VMware Cloud and AWS. As long as vSphere supports it, you can run it in this environment. Uh, another one is host over subscription. So ultimately, you're paying by the host. Uh, in VMware Cloud and AWS, you, you pay by the host. You can run as many VMs as you're comfortable uh, on that host. So... Uh, we've had customers ask us, like, hey, could I could I run 200 VMs on this one host if I want to you know, take advantage of that from a licensing perspective? Yeah, if you're comfortable doing that, if it, if it fits your uh, usage pattern, absolutely. Uh, you control the consolidation ratio, you control how much you want to uh, uh, subscribe or oversubscribe that particular host, uh, so you can take advantage of those things as well. Uh, and then custom VM geometry. Uh, if for whatever reason you want to run a, a VM that has one vCPU but has 64 gigs of RAM, maybe there's some weird application requirement that you have, uh, you, you can do those things. Where on the AWS side, you're, you're dealing with instant sizes that are prescriptive. We, we define you know, what the, the CPU to memory ratio should be uh, in different families. Uh, in this case, you can right-click, create new VM, and you manually define what that geometry should be. Uh, so you have the ability to create some interesting uh, geometries there. All right. Uh, We don't actually have time for a demo, uh, but I will uh, be around afterwards if anybody wants to to dig in on that. All right. So just to wrap up real quick, um, so things to keep in mind as you leave, make sure you pay attention to your IP address planning. Uh, This is going to be connected to a lot of different environments, on-prem, other uh, SDDCs, uh, other regions, other accounts. Spend some time putting some IP address planning from a global perspective in place. Uh, Your... uh, Account, VPC, and AZ placement considerations. Think about where those ENIs are sitting, uh, what they're communicating with. Is it traversing AZs? Is there going to be cross-AZ charges there? Um, Plan for workload mobility. You now have a really easy way to move a workload in and out of the cloud. You can go both directions uh, with just clicking a button in a console. Uh, Think about what that workload would look like if it's running in the cloud, what additional capabilities you could take advantage of. Uh, Maybe you are using EFS. But what happens if you vMotion that VM from the cloud environment back to your on-prem environment? Do you have an IPsec tunnel in place uh, that'll allow you to access that mount point? Um, Treat this as a cloud service. Don't just forklift everything over and and call it done. This is not co-location. You have the ability to dynamically scale the service. Take advantage of the capabilities of VMware Cloud and AWS. Leverage the automation. Leverage the APIs. Uh, What I would suggest you do from here uh, if you're interested in trying VMware Cloud on AWS, or maybe you'd like to get your hands on it, uh, VMware has uh, a booth out in the uh, expo hall. You can actually go log into the console, take a look at it. Um, there's also additional sessions taking place. There's one that's going to focus just on the native service integration, so I touched on some of these native service integrations, ways you could leverage these, but if you'd like to do a, an entire session specifically on that, there's Arc 3.22. Uh, VMware is actually delivering uh, several sessions as well. They're here uh, joining us. So. Uh, Be sure to check out uh, both of these other sessions if you'd like to dive in uh, or speak with them directly. Uh, And that's it. Uh, I would ask if you could. We really value your feedback. I'd love to know what you found useful out of this session, uh, if there's things that you would like us to capture more of in the future or focus more of in the future. So if you could, please take an opportunity to complete your survey and let us know uh, if this was useful for you and what you would like us to do better uh, in the future. I would greatly appreciate that. Uh, Awesome. I'll be around if you'd like to come up. I'm happy to answer any questions for you. Uh, Otherwise, thank you very much.